Welcome to this Colorado Legal Education Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Danae Woody, and I am a family lawyer here in the Denver, Colorado area. My firm is Woody Law Firm, and we focus primarily on family law and family law mediation. I'm also a member of the Colorado Bar Association's Family Law Section Executive Council, as well as the Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. And this is Allie Smits. I'm also a family law attorney here in Denver with the law firm Harrington Brewster and Klein, and we focus exclusively on family law litigation, family law mediation, and also collaborative law. Great. Thanks, Allie. So today we're going to talk a little bit about spousal maintenance in Colorado, which used to be titled alimony, and a lot of people know it as alimony, but um, we specifically have spousal maintenance in our statutes here in Colorado. So I'd like to ask for Allie to give us a little bit of an overview before we start the discussion. Sure. So alimony or maintenance, as we call it in Colorado, is... um, very simply, a payment from one spouse to another after the dissolution of marriage is finalized. And the purpose of maintenance is to allow the lower earning spouse to be provided uh, resources and income that doesn't necessarily equal the standard or allow them to equal the standard of living during the marriage, but provide them resources to rehabilitate and somewhat um, increase their standard of living such that it is, is more comparable to the higher earning spouse. It is, um, in Colorado, there is a maintenance formula. And I'm wondering, Danae, if you can talk about generally the maintenance formula and what that means. Absolutely. So there is a, a formula that the courts are guided by when determining how much is an appropriate amount of spousal maintenance to award in certain situations, not only how much, but also for how long. So the guideline in Colorado is generally for marriages that are greater than three years and for couples who who have a combined income of less than $360,000 per year or $30,000 per month, those are the same numbers, I've just broken them down for you, by year and by month, Um, if couples fall in those two categories, then the court has a really nice formula. The formula is, and and I'll lay it out, it's pretty simple, but I'll try to do it slowly. It's 40% of the higher earning spouse's income minus 50% of the lower earning spouse's income But there's a great big caveat. And the big caveat that's really important not to forget about is that that calculation matters except that when you add the lesser earning spouse's gross monthly income to the end of that calculation I just gave you, to that sum, the lesser earning spouse is not going to be permitted to have, to end up with more monthly income than would be 40% of the combined monthly incomes. So that was really dense. So that's a, yes, it is dense. And I always have to kind of think about it. And it's, you know, I think we, as family law attorneys, we know it and understand it. But uh, my advice is, first of all, read the statute. It's 1410-114 that that very clearly sets forth um, this formula that we're talking about. And then there is software. You can go to the um, state court website and go into the family law forms, and there should be a maintenance calculator um, free that you can download there. And then you can also 
you know, talk to any family law attorney likely and they will run the numbers for you. So um, I think the important thing to understand is that 40% of the higher, less 50% of the lower isn't always um, what the number will be. Yes. So then what I like to do is I run that number and then I also just add up both of the spouse's incomes. I get a total and then I come up with what 40% of that would be. And I just make sure that we're not, we're not inadvertently giving the lesser earning spouse more than what that number should be, because that would be in, uh, that would be contrary to the statute. So I, I wanted to also chime in about the transfer of this. So if we come up with a maintenance number and there is, for example, an agreement regarding what the higher earning spouse will pay to the low earning spouse, um, it is so important to remind your client, whichever side you have, that maintenance will be taxable income to the lower earning spouse. So if they're paid $2,000 a month, for example, in maintenance, that will be added on um, as if they're earning another $24,000 per year, and that is taxable income. And then the good news for the payor, the higher earning spouse, is that is going to be deductible to them. So there's a little bit of a benefit, I suppose, um, to be the person paying the maintenance. And it's important to remember that that's very different than child support, right, Allie? That's right. So child support is not taxable income, and it's not deductible um, by the payor. The idea is that that is... Those are um, resources exchanging hands between parents for the benefit of their children, not necessarily as income to one of the parties. So we one of the things we haven't yet talked about with regard to the guideline is that there's also a term that I mentioned, and there's a table contained within the statute. Again, the statute is 1410.114 of the Colorado Revised Statutes, and that's really important to look at because there are times, there are certain lengths of marriages where the suggested term under the guidelines might be close to half the length of the marriage or half the length of the marriage. There are other times with much shorter marriages when it's a little bit closer to a third of the length of the marriage, for instance. And so it's really, really important to take exactly the number of months of the marriage and then just take a look at that table. Right. I, You know, generally I tell people if they're mar- if it's a marriage over 10 plus years that we're going to be looking at somewhere around half the length of the marriage at least for purposes of this formula and I don't know if we mentioned this but I do want to reiterate um, if we have and tell you if we have not that this formula is a guideline so it's not um, it, it's not mandatory the courts do not have to follow this formula it is um, It's a guideline, and again, I think it can be a very helpful guideline, both for purposes of attorneys advising clients, um, for reaching settlement, and then ultimately for the court. So this is one element or one aspect that the court will look at when awarding maintenance to a spouse, but there are a number of other um, factors. So I'd love you, Danae, to kind of talk through what some of the other factors would be that a court might consider when looking at whether maintenance is appropriate. Absolutely. I'd love to. And before I do that, I'd also like to mention that I mentioned initially that there's a threshold where the guideline applies to marriages that are three years or greater. And when their incomes fall below, when the when the party's combined incomes fall below $360,000 per year, that does not mean to suggest that those are the only marriages where maintenance might be awarded. That's just what the guideline is set up for. So whenever you have a, sp- a request for spousal maintenance, the court needs to make several considerations and they need to go through the factors that are clearly set forth in the statute. But they're going to look at those factors 
when they have marriages that would fall within the guideline as well as when they would fall outside the guideline. They need to, the court needs to consider a lot of things when deciding whether to award spousal maintenance. So one of the things that's obviously considered by the formula is the incomes of the parties. Uh, other items that the court will, will need to look at and, and the practitioners need to put before the court are considerations of how much marital property was apportioned to each spouse and whether there was a disproportionate share given to one spouse or the other. Um, other considerations are whether there's any significant separate property that one spouse may have that might help them to better meet their needs. Now, there is case law out there that says that spouses are not necessarily required to deplete separate property to provide for their own reasonable needs, but there are certainly situations in which spouses might have separate property that's earning income for them or might be considered an economic circumstance that the court definitely needs to consider because nearly every case is different. Other things that the court will look at are the reasonable needs of each spouse as established during the marriage. And that does not mean, as might be commonly misperceived, it does not mean that a court has to award enough money to the lesser earning spouse to allow them to maintain all of their spending and their, their lifestyle as established during the marriage. Right, Allie? That, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's always one of the first conversations and sometimes one of the hardest conversations that I have with clients when we're talking about maintenance, um, really on either side of, you know, of, of the earning power in the marriage, if you will. I, um, I advise clients that when you have one income, for example, that is supporting two people under one roof, it is very different than having one income supporting two people under two different roofs. So, even if you have a dual income um, household, suddenly going from one household to two, it's going to change. Lifestyles will change unless there's lots and lots of money. So it's wonderful if a, if a family has tons of money and it's fine when there's a divorce and lifestyles may not necessarily change, but more likely and in most cases, we're going to see a change in lifestyle. So um, that is the first conversation I have with clients when talking about you know, maintenance generally and what they need. I um, I also have clients work through with me their their budget, their monthly budget, and what do they really need or what can they really afford to pay because that's a factor that's going to go hand in hand with that formula when we have the conversation about whether maintenance is really realistic or doable or if it's, you know, critically necessary because if, you know, you have a situation where you have one spouse on paper earning quite a bit of money and the other spouse is earning very little and a maintenance award appears completely reasonable and appropriate, but then you run the numbers and see there's lots of marital debt, for example, or there's very high children expenses that go beyond the child support issue, you know, scope. Those are factors that can definitely impact maintenance and what makes sense in terms of who pays and who receives. So it really is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so, Ellie, what do you consider? We talked a little bit about the considerations the court has to make, but what do you consider as a practitioner when advising clients to seek maybe more than the guidelines or maybe accept less if you have the lower earning spouse? Sure. So, I, um, you know, the, the length of the marriage is always the, the first question I look at. I think for very long-term marriages um, where, for example, there is a significant disparity in income or when one spouse has stayed home the majority of the marriage – I then, um, you know, really have a very frank conversation with my client about whether maintenance is appropriate. 
Um, I look again at the, as I think you mentioned, the financial resources of each party, um, either separate property, so property that they inherited or owned prior to the marriage that somehow was protected as separate property, what that will potentially produce in income. So, for example, if a spouse has um, rental property and, and has the ability to obtain income from that, that is something that is certainly um, a factor to consider. I I also think it's important to think about what is income and how do we calculate income. We didn't really talk about that, but to give kind of the classic scenario of stay-at-home mom and it's, you know, a long marriage, she's raised the children and she hasn't been in the workforce, even though she might have a college degree, she's been out of the workforce for 15, 20 years. What is her income if she's earning zero? I then really explore with, if I'm representing her, the low-earning spouse, for example, I explore what could you do right now? Could you go get a job? You know, go, could you get a minimum wage job? Probably. Um, do you want to go back to school? Is that, an, an, you know, a path you want to take? How long will it take you to potentially rehabilitate your career? And if that's something that spouse is wanting to do, we then kind of do a budget analysis of how that will look over a period of years, and that will then help inform the maintenance conversation or negotiation. Um, so, Ellie, I, you mentioned something that I'd like for us to talk about a little bit more in depth. You mentioned the word rehabilitation of the career. Uh, do you experience parties being in your office or being on the other side of cases that uh, might not see maintenance as rehabilitative so much? And, and if so, how do you deal with that and what, what's the educational aspect of that for your clients? Um, so... <laughs> It's such a sensitive topic. I mean, I think in terms of talking about re, you know, rehabilitation versus an entitlement, I suppose, is yes. what you mean. Yeah. So I, you know, I generally try to be very blunt that maintenance is not an entitlement, certainly if I'm representing the spouse who's seeking maintenance. Uh, and then if I'm representing the spouse who is potentially the payor of maintenance, I talk about you know, standards of living that have happened during the marriage and how we can, especially if there's children, I think that is another factor that, you know, even though there's a separate child support figure that we're going to be working with, having that conversation around children um, tends to be a little bit different, in my opinion. And I think when I'm explaining this to the courts, for example, I, you know, I do think that there is a difference if a, if a parent, a lower earning parent is supporting children, that that maintenance conversation might uh, be a little bit different. But uh, you know, I really try to be blunt with clients that this isn't meant to kind of take care of them for the rest of their lives, if you will, unless there's some really extraordinary circumstances, but rather it is intended to kind of boost them and allow them to get to a point where they can support themselves once the marriage is over. Yes. And so the reason I asked Allie about that is because I want to make clear to the practitioners listening that there are many, many cases out there that are not what we would call maintenance cases. And it's, it's very important to educate parties in your office early, especially if you have the, the spouse who might think that they'd like to seek maintenance. It's important to educate them about when maintenance is really appropriate and when it's not. So thank you, Allie, for going into that a little bit further. Absolutely. Um, can you talk today about waiving maintenance? So if you, know, if you have a client that comes into your office and is clearly the lower-earning spouse but says... I want to waive maintenance. I don't want it. How do you talk through with them that decision? That's a great question, and it's it's a really important one because a maintenance waiver is irrevocable, and the court will generally ask a lot of questions when a spouse wants to waive maintenance to ensure that they're doing so voluntarily and that they know what that means. 
But a judge doesn't have the ability to see past their courtroom doors into the conversations that those people have had with their attorneys. And so it's really important when you're in those conversations and someone says, you know what, I understand that the law, that there's a guideline that says I might be in, I might be entitled, quote unquote, to X. The entitlement word is obviously um, a fallacy, but there might be people out there who come to you and say, you know what, I don't, I don't care if I could get $6,000 a month in maintenance. I don't want it for whatever reason. It's very important to try to understand and dig a little bit deeper into why that is. And there may be valid reasons for that. Um, maybe they have already been in discussions with their spouse and they are considering a property division settlement that's going to be uh, very weighted very heavily in their favor as far as an unequal division of marital property goes. And that, that absolutely is something that's acceptable, and, and courts will accept those types of agreements. So one party gets the lion's share of the property in exchange for waiving maintenance, which their their spouse might appreciate because then the, the, the higher-earning spouse might be able to feel more able to move on from the marriage, and they might feel more able to start over with their lives. So... Maintenance waivers are are something to consider as a practitioner. There's certainly thing things to consider and, and issues that we need to think through. Especially as I mentioned, with waivers being irrevocable, it's it's a very big decision if you have the client who's considering waiving. So what if uh, what if you have a client that comes in and says, "Well, I don't think I want it right now, but I might want it in a couple years. So can I come back for it?" Yes. So. That's where the maintenance waiver is not going to be a good idea because it's irrevocable and the court can later not modify the waiver. Once it's waived, it's gone and it's off the table forever. So the first thing I will generally recommend, or I'll I'll at least analyze the case and decide if a traditional maintenance award would be something to educate my clients about and just go ahead and get them started with the traditional award. And if they don't need it right now, what better thing to do than put it into a savings account or into some sort of interest-bearing account or security that's going to set them up for later if they don't need it right now, but if they may want it later. If they're not interested in going the traditional route right now, at the very least, it's better to secure a nominal maintenance award rather than waive it completely. Right. When we were talking about this podcast and preparing a little bit um, before we went live, one of the things you mentioned that I think was so interesting was that in talking about waiving maintenance versus not waiving maintenance, it can be a very effective um, negotiating tool, if you will. So I'd love you to talk about that and how you've seen that help clients who are considering waiving maintenance or decide to waive maintenance. Absolutely. So I find that the during negotiations, the maintenance waiver being on the table has proven very valuable in in cases that I've had in recent history when I've had the lower earning spouse because I've had, as I mentioned, I've had a lot of clients who might earn a little bit more money who A, can't really stomach the thought of having to pay what used to be known as alimony and it's traditionally known in society as alimony. Uh, For whatever reason, it can be difficult for people to have to write that check. It's very difficult to write a check to your ex-spouse, I would think. I would think. I've never had to do it. But it's, it's not something that probably feels real good, especially when looking at the potential uh, with longer-term marriages of maybe having to write that check forever. We haven't talked about the specifics of what might be referred to as lifetime maintenance, but there are certainly certain marriages where a higher-earning spouse could be paying a lesser-earning spouse for the rest of their lives. 
and that's difficult. So it's it's pretty attractive as a means to help settle some cases. If, if you've got the lesser earning spouse who's willing to say, you know what, I don't want to go after you for spousal maintenance, that can go a long way with the with sort of the psychological motivations involved in settlement. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really interesting area to, to talk through with, with clients. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about maintenance buyouts. Yeah. Um, so how do yeah. you how do you address those in your cases? Sure. So a maintenance buyout, I, what that essentially means is that we will calculate the potential gross amount of maintenance. So you know, number of months of maintenance times the the dollar figure and come up with a gross sum, and then tax affect it. So because maintenance is taxable income to the recipient, if I'm representing, for example, the spouse who is potentially receiving or going to receive maintenance, um, we'll do the, figure out the gross number and then do the tax effect of what they're going to save if they um, take that money as a lump sum or, or receive it as a lump sum versus take it over time and have to pay tax on it. So that's the first piece of um, you know information I'll go through with the clients. And then the next piece is really determining if there are sufficient marital resources to do a buyout. So a buyout would look like instead of a spouse, and I think you touched on this a minute ago, but instead of a spouse um, doing monthly or providing monthly maintenance payments to their ex-spouse, they instead would provide them marital property, whether it's um, real estate or checking accounts or a retirement account, something that would essentially kind of be in lieu of that monthly maintenance. And so that's how a buyout would work. And there's definitely um, some complex tax factors for everyone to consider in that scenario. And it is really important to have very clear language in the separation agreement if you reach this by um, by agreement, or it has to be reached by agreement, I suppose, because a court wouldn't, can't necessarily order a maintenance buyout. But I do think um, making sure that you very clearly address the you know the amount and the tax impact of the buyout versus a non-buyout and what exactly you're trying to do. So, saying all of this because it's there are some really complex tax implications. And if you have a client that has the resources to do a buyout, I um, I think the best piece of advice you can give them is to consult with a CPA, whether they're you know the recipient or the payor, to make sure it's going to make um, tax sense for them to receive or to pay a buyout. Absolutely. Thanks, Allie. So yeah. we, Allie and I have been talking about spousal maintenance in Colorado. I am Danae Woody. And I'm Allie Smits. And thank you so much for listening today. Thanks for listening. For more information on this topic and many others, visit cle.copar.org. CLE. .copar .org. CLE.